As we begin to reintegrate into the world post-lockdown, we're confronted with the fact that our lives are not the same as they were before 2020. And with that comes the realization that a lot of us have to relearn, rebuild, and restart. Struggling to do so myself, I wondered how other people are able to rise from the ashes of crumbled moments throughout their lifetime. I'm Rebecca Lee, and this is season two. How the fuck did you bounce back? Ashley. Hello. How Thank are you? you? I'm good. Thank you so much for, for joining me as I take a sip of LaCroix. You gotta stay I made hydrated. you jealous with my sparkling water and you're like, now I need some. I saw you do it and I go, my brain like subconsciously was like, gotta do it. What flavor is yours? Um, mine is a delicious sparkling Fuji apple pear today. Did not even know that existed. Honestly, it's a little bit of a cheater. She's a Celsius, so she brings energy and sparkling water vibes. Sure. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Um, uh, Cool. Well, I just want to just kind of go straight into it. So you are uh, one of the or the only executive producer on- One of one of the executive producers on um, a new documentary called 11 Minutes that'll be on Paramount Plus. Do you have like a release date or is it already out? It, it came out on September 27th. So we're Amazing. just a little over a month in. Yeah. How has it, I mean, how has it been? I mean, it's a, it's a lot. It is. And honestly, I, you know, this is sort of this collision of personal and professional for me. I've, I've worked in content creation for over a decade and you get into projects and they become personal. Mm. This started as a personal story, as a personal memory And so it was a bit of a a different process and honestly, it was a lot of pressure. And I, I, I was very nervous for the release because you spend all this time working on something and you, you, all you can do is try with all of your might to make sure you approach things with integrity, respect, kindness, love, and see that reflected in, in your project. And then you just don't know how anyone else is going to receive that. Mm-hmm. And from the get-go, I always hoped that this would really adjust the point of view that had been explored when it came to this event. Um, I think largely I felt like the point of view that had gone most explored was that of the worst person there. And it just wasn't the history that mm-hmm. I held on to. Mm-hmm. And as this sort of big five-year anniversary approached, as a storyteller, I really was hungry to put the POV of the survivors out into the world, um, to share about the light that was in the darkness that night. That's what I remember running out of that field is bearing witness to some of the most incredible accounts of humanity. And then in the five years to follow, just meeting all of these incredibly brave, resilient people. And I wanted them to be remembered when this event was talked about, not that person. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you, you do it and you put it out there and you hope that those people feel seen and that their story was respected and cared for, but you just don't know until you put it out there. And it's been, it's really just been the most incredible experience to see how it is changing people's hearts, how it is you know, making people feel seen, remembered, how it's helping with healing, how it's helping, gosh, 
you know, I've had notes from therapists saying, you know, you've helped me do my job better. I work with first responders or people who lost someone saying, thank you. Now my loved one will be remembered. And it's, it's just this really beautiful outpouring. And as a creator, it's like I said, it's what you hope happens, but you don't know if it will. And it's so beautiful to watch it ripple out into the world. It's really been an extraordinary experience. Yeah. What a gift you've given to, I mean, not only like the survivors, but like you said, like therapists of first responders and people who maybe don't have that narrative, who like don't know the narrative that you're you're speaking of, of the survivors. Cause you know, a lot of us only see what's in the news. And as we know, the news fucking sucks. So <laughs> like, I, it's just an incredibly uh, loving, kind, courageous thing that you did. Can you um, just talk a little bit about the documentary itself and what it covers? Absolutely. So 11 Minutes tells the story of the evening of October 1st, 2017. Um, There was a country music festival set in Las Vegas, Nevada called the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival. And on that particular night at 10.05 p.m., a gunman opened fire from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay, uh, ultimately claiming the lives of 58 people and injuring more than 800. Um, and then additionally, obviously, t- you know, there was 22,000 people there. So touching those 22,000 people and everyone that they loved and cared about changing their lives forever. And this documentary really, it's the story of that night, but it is, uh, there is an emphasis on the light that was in the darkness, the stories of resiliency, what it means to be a survivor of an event like this, of heroism, of everyday people showing up and doing extraordinary things for others. And, and really just, like I said, um, sharing what it means to be a part of an event like this. I I think I was particularly, you know, to the point you brought up of, of those who weren't there, you know, I was really naive before this was a part of my story. I think I saw events like mass shootings on the news and you think, wow, that's a really terrible, really sad thing that's happening to those people on the news. And you pray for them and you you wish it would stop with all of your might, but do you really think that that's something that's going to happen to you. I, I truthfully can say I didn't. And the truth is, is none of us are exempt. And I think we also have to stop turning away. I was, I was touched by Matthew McConaughey and his wife Camilla's speeches after the Uvalde shooting. I, they held, held those shoes and said, you know, we, we have to stop turning away from this. If we never take the time to understand what happened here, to know the stories of the people whose lives are touched, nothing will ever change. And I think we've gotten into a sort of gnarly habit, honestly, in the you know in this country, perhaps in this world, uh, of really diving into something and being an advocate for something or being mad about something or upset about something for a week. And then we sort of move on to the next hard headline and it never, it never really allows us understanding of what happened. And I think, you know, that's why we took a narrative approach in this documentary is we wanted people to get to know the people for them, not to just be people on the news, for them to be 
mothers and brothers and sisters and best friends and Natalie's and Jonathan's and, and to really humanize what it's like to be a part of something like this. Cause how, how would you ever understand? And that's been really cool is to have family members, spouses, siblings, um, loved ones come up and say, you know what? I never, never really got it. I never really understand. I never really understood what my loved one went through. And we've never really been able to have a real conversation about this until we watched your documentary. And that to me is an incredible gift as a storyteller to incite conversation that not just, you know, may change the way someone thinks about this event, but may connect them in a greater greater way to their fellow human being or to their loved one. I just, wow. Like I, I, I don't know if I anticipated that in all honesty, mm. um, but it's really, it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, right? Because how do you ever really understand what someone goes through if you weren't there? And this project is particularly immersive, made up of a lot of cell phone footage and body cam footage. It feels like you're with these people. And so in some ways, I think that immersion is is leading to a greater understanding for a lot of folks. Yeah, I have goosebumps from that entire thing. Um, does the documentary follow, and I'm I'm honestly, and I'll, I'm nervous to watch it because yeah. like, as you're, and, and that's on me, right? Like that is my kind of, uh, I mean, honestly, stuff that I need to talk about in my therapy is like how confronting that is. Um, but like, as you're speaking, I'm like on the verge of tears the whole time. And I'm worried, I'm just like concerned that I'm just going to like lose it. Um, do, do you follow like survivors or people that were lost during that time or yeah, yeah can you like break that down a little bit yeah absolutely we we do we do we are in the survivor perspective so we okay. we follow a number of survivors who were there that night ranging from concert goers to performers to first responders who are you know the EMT service who are working um on on site to those who responded so hospital workers, SWAT team members, uh, many members of the Las Vegas Metro PD. And so you really do, you get sort of the full scope. And we also do talk with with parents who, who did lose a daughter there as well as um, their daughter's best friend. And, you know, that was important for us is to to share a bit about that perspective and and also to pay honor to that side of the story, even though it it did live in the survivor perspective for mm -hmm. most of us. Um, and what I'll say to you is what I say to everyone, you know, this, this particular piece is, I believe it's important. I believe that it was a part of my healing journey. And now I know that it's becoming a part of many other people's healing journey and, and also journey to understanding but it's it's not for everyone and it might not be for everyone right now. And I really support everyone where they are at. I, I think you have to do in this life whatever you can to protect your peace. And so truthfully, I mean this, this, it might not be for you right now, but if what you're nervous about is crying or being emotional, I'll say, you know, I I think it's really truly what led to this piece being so beautiful is 
whenever I was in a room with someone else getting ready to tell their story, I, I shared a bit about mine. And I also, I never felt afraid to be vulnerable. If there was something during an interview that made me cry, I cried. If there's something that made me smile, I smiled mm -hmm. because a therapist, uh, once said to me, and I thought it was so wise and I've just kept it at the forefront of my heart. This whole project is, it would be far more abnormal for any of us to pretend like this was normal. What happened there wasn't normal. We shouldn't allow it to be normal. And it should, it was upsetting. It was upsetting and it was dramatic and it was hard and it's still hard for people. And so I, I, I would, I would dare to say, I, I don't, I don't know many people who haven't had an emotional connection to the piece, but I always say if you can stick in there till episode four, which starts the next morning and really talks about the connections that were forever made the family that was formed that night, as well as pays tribute to the 58 lives lost, as well as, um, not to spoil the ending of a very harrowing, scroll um at the end uh we it takes about six and a half minutes to get through it's three columns long and it's every name of every person who's been lost in a mass shooting since our nation's largest mass shooting on october 1st of 2017 but it is in some ways you know i hate to play favorites but episode four is is so special to me because oftentimes in media we have to we're positioned to end on the drama and this really did end on the now and what came next and the journey of healing and what it looks like and all of its messy glory in some ways. And, and that was really prolific to get to share. Um, and I think that episode in particular touches anyone who's experienced any kind of trauma in their life, you know, and, and so I, yeah, I'll say, you know, to your point, I, I don't know a lot of people who haven't felt emotional watching it. And if you, if you're listening and you didn't, that's totally okay too. Um, but I think how could you, how could you possibly not? It was a really upsetting thing that happened, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, and it's like a fine line, right? Between because like you said, yeah, I I agree. Like you have to protect your peace in this world, right? But there's a fine line between that and then like you also said, like not giving it attention or turning the mm -hmm. other cheek or having a blind eye. And it, yeah, it's like a fine line. And I feel like I'm probably, just because I'm just a highly sensitive person, I don't yeah. think I'm yeah. ever gonna, yeah. I don't think I'm ever gonna be ready, quote unquote yeah. ready. Yeah. To, to watch anything that is of this, you know, subject yeah. matter. But I think I need to, because if I don't, how can I um, make change or, or uh, like talk about the issue in a way that is not like just thoughts and prayers. Like I feel like yeah. has, has been the topic of conversation when this stuff comes up has uh has this either making the documentary or the experience itself and like I I do want to talk about like your experience too because it's kind of what this this podcast is about um but in terms of the documentary has it changed your thoughts on like any gun control laws or anything like that pre versus post either event or documentary 
or are you pretty much the same or and also if you don't feel comfortable talking about this that's totally fine too no and i you know what i can share is is my personal perspective on it yeah. um we we interview um we interview a set of parents who have uh really been advocates in the um assault rifle ban space as well as the um the fight against gun manufacturers in general um a lot of people might not know this but many guns come with um, a notation that says that they're able to be modified. And, you know, if it's technically illegal for us to now own bump stocks or to use them, why would we put that? Like, you wouldn't throw on a Barbie box, right? Like, Barbie's head turns around if it mm. doesn't, right? Because then a kid is going to turn Barbie's head and her right. head is not going to work anymore. So I, it's interesting. I, you know, we, they shared their, a little bit about their journey. And again, we really went through the narrative perspective on this. Um, but personally, I side with them in the notion that I believe there is a world where the second amendment and the assault rifle ban lives hand in hand. You know, I don't, I think as we continue to read these headlines, one thing seems to continuously be the same, which is the type of weapon that's used. And when I look up, when I look that up in the dictionary, when I look that type of weapon up in the dictionary, it literally says for military use. Right. And so it's confusing to me why civilians, A, have them in general mm -hmm. and have access to them, but also, again, I, I, I think, you know, so many people say like, I wish there would have been a good, a good person on the ground with a gun that night. And you're like, oh my goodness, like there were police officers everywhere. Like they uh -huh. just didn't stand a chance. And yeah. I think we're seeing a lot of those emerging topics come out. And I think also hearing from law enforcement that it's, it's a little scary. You're, you're going into, you know, a, a big fight with a small, a very small chance of success with when it's not an apples to apples situation. So I, I can't, I, uh, that has always been my stance yeah. um, and that continues to be my stance. I also think in general, you know, there's a, when it comes to topics of mass shootings, there's a lot of big overwhelming conversations, right? It's, it's gun control, which I think people can fly pretty quickly when you hear that term into, oh, you're anti-gun. Right. I don't actually think like that's what that's saying. I think it's saying like, let's reflect on the laws, make sure that they're responsible and that guns are in the hands of responsible people. And that if guns are in hands of responsible people, that they're being used responsibly. Right. And I also think we talk a lot about mental health care. And yeah, that's, that's that was my next question. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's huge. Like we, we need to prioritize that in this country. You know, I came back from our nation's largest mass shooting and it took three weeks for a therapist to even call me back. Oh my God. And, and listen, I live in a big place. I live in Los Angeles, California. So I, I'm lucky that I have a great support system, but what the heck, you know, like I can literally in 10 minutes, get a prescription over this zoom for strep throat. So like, I, yeah. like, I can't talk to someone, but yeah. you know, it's just, it, it's made far more complicated than it needs to be. And I think you start talking about those topics and I've, I've been in that conversation now for quite some time. So they're familiar topics to me, 
But I think a lot of people hear them and they're like, oh, like, how do I even like start to deal with that? They're really big things like gun control, reforming mental health care. Like those sound really big. And so I always like to say to people when they say, you know, what can I do to create change? You know, it, what, how, how do we make these headlines stop? To me, it's so, so simple. It's be a kinder neighbor. The truth is, is I believe that people who feel loved and seen do not commit mass acts of violence. And so if you're looking for a right now thing to do, be a kinder neighbor. If you see someone who's upset, ask them what's wrong. If you see someone sitting alone, go sit and talk to them. See someone having a rough day, like try to make, try, try to turn it around, do a random act of kindness. I, I, I think about that so often. I think about what if there was one, you know, and that that's no one's responsibility. That's just my wild thought. But what if there was one person who had said something different and it could have changed the course of that entire day for that individual? I'm not saying that's possible, um, in his case, and I'm not putting that on anyone whom he ran into that day. But I do believe that as simple as it seems, love is not just life-changing. It can be life-saving. Mm. And so just be a kinder. If you don't know how else to get involved or you feel that paralysis when things feel really big on how to try to make these headlines stop, just do your best to be a kinder person. And then also start to inform yourself, inform yourself on what's going on and what you believe and, and vote, you know, yeah. vote, what vote, we can all vote. do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know we talked about this a little before we started recording, but it, I wanted to touch on it. Um, cause I think it's so important not saying, um, I, I don't even know how to phrase. I mean, I don't want to like, <sighs> Are you, you can call him the shooter. He okay, was. great. That's what I was okay. Yeah. Like yeah. not saying the shooter's name or I don't even know like how much it sounds like probably very little you get into even talking about this individual at all in the documentary. But I know we talked about not saying that person's name as a like choice. And I wanted um to hear a little bit about why that decision was the one that was made. Absolutely. Um I have never said his name. He does not deserve the breath in my lungs personally. Um, I, I knew a lot of other people shared that stance. Um, and from the get-go, I was really advocating with my team, right? Who, you know, was incredible. I had an incredible team who really, not only, you know, was I included as a, a producer in conversations, but they really leaned in to figure out how we best honor th those touched by this event, how, how to talk about things like this language to use or not to use. And so we had a lot of conversations from the get-go about whether or not from a journalistic perspective, you know, could we, could we go through this piece and not, not say his name? It was, it was always something that I wanted, I, did I know if we could really get through the journey of that night and would others support that? You know, was that something that police would support that other journalists we were talking to would support? Gosh, he's, he's been named in, in news pieces that we wanted to use. And we do go through the investigation with the FBI. How would they feel about that? And resoundingly, everyone shared the same stance. And so it was, oh gosh, it's almost like overwhelming to me 
to this minute, I'll never forget um, receiving the edit for um, the, uh, the a, a part of the piece where we talk about why why he did what he did in, in an investigative ma manner. And truthfully, as a survivor, I had a lot of questions for the FBI and, and, and how the, like, why was this handled the way, what was going on? Like there, we weren't given a note. We weren't given a real reasoning other than, you know, this is what someone decided to do on a Sunday night, which is so like, it's a, a, an unbearable evil to reckon with. And it's also just leaves you spinning a little bit. And so as a journalist, I, I had a lot of questions in that arena and those, the, that day of interviews was really intense. And when, when I was viewing the part of the piece that touched on this, um, a big, a big part of what the FBI shared is that he had a lot of searches on his computer about how to become social media famous. And when my team sent the first cut and I, I, I didn't know that this, this was a further stylistic thing. Not only did, did we fully, were we fully able to honor never saying his name in our interviews, we made the choice to remove it from other news pieces, as well as the names of other shooters from news pieces that were lending to the topic. And as a producer, I was so proud and I, I truly hope that other media see this example and follow it. But additionally, as a survivor, was so empowering on behalf of all of those people, myself included, who had a piece of themselves or more taken away that night to take something back that he wanted it mm. it was it, it was an empowering moment i hope that when other people watch uh, watch it especially survivors and those who are touched or those who lost someone that they feel a bit of empowerment in that moment um but i i mostly hope that other media see that a comprehensive story can be told while still honoring this notion that we shouldn't we shouldn't be paying homage to the point of view of a person who does something like this especially if their goal like we shouldn't be working to help them meet their goals that's not that's that not helpful to thought like that's something we can do as media that's a way that we can hopefully continue to fight and make sure that these things lessen you know that's that's something that we can do a very tangible thing yeah and I feel like that also on like a individual level because I know um that we all not we all, but a lot of us want to be involved in social media as a way to like, um, uh, bring awareness to different issues. And I feel like this is good to know for people who maybe like repost anything about whether it's gun control or an event or whatever, if they're reposting something with an, well, one, try to find something that doesn't have this person's yeah. name, or if it does to cross, I mean, it, everybody yeah. knows how to cross out a thing on your phone. Like, Heck yeah. Cross it out. And I feel like that's another thing that individuals can do um, 
to, I don't know, try. It's like, it's so overwhelming, right? Cause it's like to try to let this never happen again. And then it's like, then another day happens in America and then another shooting happens and it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Absolutely frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. feels overwhelming. You know, it feels unsafe and scary. And, you know, I sit around asking myself every day, am I doing enough? Even though I, you feel like you're and, trying. It and feels you're like- an, the executive producer of this documentary and you still are like, am I doing enough? And you're like, already did this huge thing. So it's like, yeah, it's like insurmountable. It feels like that. Yeah. Um, but I do like how you said, like the first thing that you can do is just like be a kind neighbor, be a good person. And if like you're finding yourself in a headspace that isn't that like trying to seek help and then it like goes hand- and then we, and then it goes like, okay, well our, our, like not even our mental health, but like our healthcare system in general. And it's like, it just snowballs. Um, it does. And it's, a, it's overwhelming, you know, it's just, it's a lot it feels like there's so much to think about. And I think you can only tend truly to the garden in your reach. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, to the point of social media, I think we also like, we get so like stuck in this world that we forget that there's this whole world going out here and that our our thoughts and actions really do have effects on other people. And so you're right. Like, you know, I, I, crossing, crossing out a name or like, it's all about like the little stuff does build up and it does matter. And I I guess what I've found is like those little things can be really big things, you know? And so the more that we pay less attention to this, to people who are doing it to seek attention or be remembered, the more we, we don't give that the the more that we can you know hopefully the less desirable for whatever reason it'll right. be but also you know again I I just think that people people we get really like focused on our ourselves and forget to like look around and see that there's uh, just a lot of people out there who are hurting too you know and I suppose it it feels nerve-wracking sometimes to approach a person if if you hadn't, but I just, I would encourage people, you know, if you, if you see someone who is in a, in a hard place, like speak with them at, you know, reach out, like reach out to your friends, see how people are doing. Like it's, it's been a rough couple of years. And also, you know, not, I'm, I'm from a very small town in the Midwest and I, I didn't necessarily grow up I didn't grow up with any negative view of, of therapy, but it wasn't something that was talked about in a really, really open fashion. And it's such a part of my life. It's, it's changed my life. It's probably saved my life at this point. Like those are important tools. And I, like I said, I, I think it's, it's, it's so crazy that if we get physically sick, like our first thing we do is like, Oh, we got to get to the doctor Mm -hmm. or like the pharmacy. Like you got a headache, you take an ibuprofen, you know, but like, oh, I'm not, I, I don't like mentally feel well. And I, I feel like I can't openly say like, I need to be a little late to work today because I have a therapy appointment. Like, yeah, you know, like we have to just work to continue to normalize that conversation over and over and over until it's being approached in the exact same way. Yeah. And I know that like, 
there's also a stigma with like um mental health medications too and like which is like another I mean very similar to therapy but I've talked to some people who who do go to therapy but when the topic comes of like medications they're like oh no like I don't want to do that for whatever reason I don't want to start it and then have to be on it the rest of my life or and it's like yeah but like if you have a blood pressure issue, you take a medicine and you're on it for the rest of your life for that. And, but I'm very much, you know, I've been going to therapy for a very long time and I'm very open about it on this podcast. And I, I take medication and all of that stuff. So, um, like I understand the fear, but also like, it's okay. And like, it's, it's, and I also feel like it's a productivity thing too. Like in America, we're like, we got to be productive. We got to like make money in this like capitalist society that we're not taking the time to like focus on the thing that like we need in order to do that. Like you said, like being late to work because of a therapy appointment, stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I think also, right. Like if you're, if you are an employer listening to this, if you are someone who is in charge of a team or anyone else's schedule, like, please recognize that if someone comes to you and says like, Hey, I need an hour for this. Like, would you have given them an hour to go to the dentist? Yes. So like we, it's just about starting to like change that mindset. And I, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's, I, I've, I've been really grateful to have, you know, gone to a wonderful weekly therapist and to attend some incredible, you know, intensive therapy retreats after this event. And it's, it's tools that not just people who go through something like I did, like the, that's, those are great everyday tools for people. And I don't know, I just, I think ultimately life, life is short. And I, we say a lot of really cute things like you only live once or YOLO or, you know, every moment. And those are all just really cute sayings until you sit in a moment that you with quite conviction, know could be your last, but it's true. Like you don't, you don't think about the dollars you're not going to make like you, you the people in the moments. And so to anyone with apprehension about therapy or mental health care, like I'd say, just go live your best life. You really don't get to know when it's up. And I just, I just think like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do whatever you possibly could for yourself? If you have the ability to live wonderfully and, and more mentally free physically like while while you're here, you know? Um, and I, I think, like I said, a lot of times we approach that from a physical health perspective, but we forget that, you know, this thing was just need some, need some love every now and again too. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about like your experience. If you are comfortable talking about that, um, this podcast is called how the fuck did you bounce back? And it's about, um, (laughs) it's about, bouncing back from low points in your life or overcoming challenges or struggles. Um, and I usually ask like, what is a low point that you've had in your life that you are most proud of overcoming? Um, and obviously it doesn't have to be related to this if you don't want it to be. Um, but I'm just curious how you would answer that question. Yeah, I, 
You know, it's interesting. I've, I've had a lot of conversations about this as of recent. I, as I, I, I don't think I knew that I felt this way until I said it out loud for the first time, but I, I don't think I believe in the term healed. I, I really believe in the term healing as an active term. I think, you know, I, I certainly would consider, you know, October 1st, 2017, you know, I, I think I thought that year ahead was going to be the hardest of my life. And don't get me wrong. It was really, really hard. Um, but that's the interesting thing about trauma is that it gets this, you know, it's this wound, whether you physically got wounded during it or not, it's, it's this wound and it's, it's a scar that you wear forever. And sometimes that scar is closed up and maybe you only think about it a little bit here and there. And, and then some days some random thing happens and all of a sudden it bursts wide open. And it's like, it's bleeding everywhere again. And I think, I think sort of the the best thing that we can learn to do as people is, is just wound management. Know when you need to put on a bandaid or change one or, or recognize, you know, what's going on with you and take a breather or whatever it might be. Because I, I can report that in the next five years, there would be several moments that I found myself very, very low. And it, you know, this project in particular was, it probably it's probably the most rewarding thing I will ever get to do, but it was also, it was really hard. It's really, for me, a lot of the PTSD comes in the form of sounds. I'm, I'm not really good where I, when I don't know where sounds are coming from and to subject yourself to watching the scenes and sounds of the worst day of your life, the worst day of my life that I also experienced with my spouse, who I, you know, love very much. Um, that was a lot. And I, I am really grateful. Like I said, I, I went to a, an incredible intensive retreat called Onsite outside of Nashville, um, a week long uh, retreat uh, with 25 other survivors of, of the Route 91 harvest shooting right before I, I got into the depths of production. And I, I felt like I wanted to put my own mask on first. If I was going to help be a leader for other people to share their story, I wanted to not only make sure I had a, a handle on mine and my own mental health care, but also be prepared to truly be a support system. And I, I took so, 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 so many valuable tools away, but I also re-solidified how important it was going to be no matter whether I wanted to, or I thought I needed to like to relentlessly show up for my weekly therapy appointment, because I, it's just a lot. It's a, it's a lot seeing it and hearing it, but also to then meet people who you care about and to empathize with them. Oh, it's choking me up as we speak. Cause you just, we've all grown to really care about each other. And we certainly, survivors of of this particular event you know we we call each other our route 91 family because you have this intimate connection whether you've known each other for five years or you've known each other for five minutes you you start with this like intimate crazy connection and so I don't know it's a, a long way of saying like I don't 
I'm a person who believes I'm a person who looks for reason in the unreasonable. And I, I believe that a part of the reason I was there that night is because I am a storyteller and I could shine a light on, on the people that deserve to have that light shown upon them. Um, and the stories of, of many others, but yeah, it's, it's still hard, you know, it's, it, surviving wasn't just about making it through 11 minutes of gunfire. It was about surviving second one and every day for the rest of our life. And so I'm, I've certainly felt very low points after that. Um, and I, I'm guessing that might be something I experience on and off for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm most grateful that I have gained a lot of tools and valuable support system to help bring me up out of those moments and to recognize in myself when I need to go to one of those tools or one of those people, instead of being like, ah, oh, you know what? I got this. I can do it on my own. Cause I'm that person. I'm that person. I'm, I identify as a helper. And I don't think until I went through this, I realized I had placed so much of my identity in that, that when you say, when you identify as a happy helper, you unfortunately didn't leave room for being hurt or sad or mad and starts to feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be the person people come to for help. How, mm. how do I ask for any, you know, it's, so I guess I'm, I don't know. I'm, I look back at that time period, I, there was a photo that was taken of me about 30 minutes prior to the shooting. And, um, it was in my Instagram drafts when I got my phone back and, uh, it was a picture of me and holding a cold beer, getting ready to go up to see Jason Aldean after we had just seen another show in the, the smaller tent. And my husband took it and he had come out of the bathroom. And he said, you just look like you're having the best time. And I really was. Um, but that woman is someone different. She's, she, I, you know, I went to bed October 1st, one person, and I woke up, you know, October 2nd, a completely different person. And I'm, it's taking me a long time, but I'm really, I'm really proud of both of those people, of what they've gone through and what they've achieved and how they've used their purpose. But I'm also like, I'm, I'm grateful in some ways for the incredible community and support system that's come into my life. Um, one of the mothers of one of the 58 spoke at the five-year anniversary and she said it so elegantly because we're always looking for the sentiment because it's it's feels weird as a survivor to say you're you're grateful or even that you're excited to see one another because you're like, should I not feel those feelings? Like those aren't sentiments that go along with being involved with the mass shooting. And she elegantly said, as she looked out in the audience, she said, you know, I'm it's weird because I'm here to honor someone I care about very much who was taken from me too soon. But then I look out, but then I look out into this crowd and I see so many wonderful people have come out, come into my life. And, you know, I know now that it's possible for joy and sadness to coexist in the same moment. And it, um, yeah, I mean, if that doesn't get you, yeah. but it's so true. It's so true that you, you know, so much has been taken, but also so much has, it has come into my life too. So I'm really grateful to all of those people who 
have been a part of this journey and just so unbelievably knocked down, inspired by what they've been through. And also, you know, they'll, I hope that they're in my life forever. Cause I, I have grown to just really adore everyone that, you know, I've, I've gotten the chance to talk with and hear, hear their story. They're some of the bravest, most resilient people I know I'll ever get to meet. You mentioned a little bit about like your toolkit and I know that therapy is a big one for you um, and community. Um, whew, I'm like, yeah. yeah. Um, what are some of the other, or are there any other tools that if somebody who is either, you know, a survivor of a mass shooting or just a survivor of trauma in general or exper- experiencing PTSD, any other tools that have worked for you, whether it's just like, in the moment, okay, I'm going to stay home from work today. Like mm-hmm. whether it's something that's like, um, tangibly that you can like tangibly do or a piece of advice or just anything in your toolkit that has been helpful for you that you think might be helpful for somebody else experiencing anything in that world. Yeah. I, um, I think really informing yourself of your own environment, you know, I think not not allowing for surprises. You know, a lot of people say to me, like, how do you go back to concerts? And the truth is, is like live music is my most favorite thing. I sing like a dying cat, but I, I like, I love other people who have musical talent. And I love that energy of being with other people singing along and dancing and really having that like moment with music. And so I, I went back to my first concert about a month after Um, truthfully, I'd gotten tickets with a friend, forgot we had them. She really wanted to go when I knew that. And she felt bad, like not reminding me that we had the tickets. It was a very weird thing. And when she asked me, she's, I think she fully anticipated that I would say like, no go. And I really thought about it for a moment. And I, I said, you know, I, I really want to try. And if you're down, I I really want to try. And I think if we go early and I figure out where the exits are and like, you know, maybe I stand in the back by the door, maybe I'll feel okay. And if not, like, I'm just going to leave. And like, are you okay being at the show by yourself? And so we had this long talk and we went an hour early and we really informed ourselves. And I think it was, you know, it, it was an incredible show and I did make it through the whole thing. It was very emotional. Um, but for me, it's really, you know, if you're going to go to a show, you know, if, for example, if you have been through a mass shooting, I know for me sounds or, um, you know, not knowing where noises are coming from can be really triggering. I know, um, I'll never walk into a room ever again and not know exactly how I would get out of that room. And so go early, go early, you know, security is super nice. And like, ask them, is there, are there pyrotechnics in this show? Um, where are the, you know, here's where my seats are. Do you know where the closest exits are? And don't, don't be afraid to tell them what you went through. You know, I just, even this past year, I, I went, you know, I was at Coachella and there was someone, you know, who was famous coming through, but a, a large amount of security, showed up and I immediately, I get very panicked and I I start thinking like, do I need to get somewhere safe? 
I simply walked over to someone and said, can you tell me what's going on? And they very kindly at first were like, no, because that's what their job is. Right. And I said, listen, I, I get it. It's your job, but I'm a survivor of a mass shooting and that is really freaking me out. So could you please let me know at the very least, is everything okay here? And the, I've never had someone say to me anything other than like, absolutely. And then explain what's going on. Don't, you know, no one's going to assume that that's something that you've gone through or that you have trauma. I think we do all, you know, we do ourselves the disservice, right. Of putting on the face and saying, ah, everything's fine. I've got this. I've got to be fine. It's okay to not be fine. And it's okay to have gone through something, let other people know so that they can support you. I think I, I, maybe that's the greatest thing I can tell people is I think I was really good. I think I actually made a whole life out of, I'm, I'm an old, I, you know, I, I'm an oldest girl in my family. And, um, I think I made a whole life out of letting people know that I was okay. Um, and that they didn't need to worry about me and that I, I was the helper. I was here to make your life easier that accidentally when something hard happened to me, I think a lot of people, because that's the face I was putting on, right. Made the assumption that I was fine. Mm. And, and that just made it harder and harder to ask for help. It didn't really do me any service. So I would say to people, when you go through something gnarly, truly, you might be thinking that or you might be anticipating or or expecting of yourself that you should just be fine or bounce back. But it's really like when something abnormal happens, it's far more abnormal to pretend like it's normal. And so lean on other people, find support. If it's not going to be with your family or friends, or you feel like people don't understand, I promise you are not the only person on the planet earth who has gone through something of this nature. It might not be the exact same thing, but there's someone out there just like you who's feeling isolated and waiting for you to say, I need to talk about this. So find an online support group, find a bunch of strangers who you don't feel nervous talking in front of, find, you know, a 12 step program, you know, find something where you feel comfortable talking and let it out. So it doesn't eat you alive. And within all of those types of groups, I feel like there's tons of different tools from things you can do with other people, you know, learning, um, if someone's getting worked up where, where you might place your hand on, on them to help them feel grounded, which could be a shoulder, um, put it touching your shoulder to their shoulder. It could be putting your foot on top of their foot. Um, learned a great skill that I use every single day on the freeway in Los Angeles, which is called vooing. If you find yourself getting fluttery and panicked, if you take the deepest breath you can and simply until you literally can't anymore, one to three times, you will recenter yourself and come back down to normal. And it is I mean, the number of times I'm, I'm sure there's someone in the office next door who's like, is there a woman who does believe she's a cow next door? But there's, there's some great little tips and tricks. Um, but yeah, I would say find your, find your support system. Um, 
don't, don't try to do it alone. It's just, it's, it's a not necessary, but also if you're a helper, if you're a helper, I would say out loud to you, because I'm a, a real people pleaser. And someone once said to me, if, <laughs> if you're not telling your truth to other people, you're robbing them of the opportunity to step up for you. Mm. And that hit me super hard um, because I would never, I would never want to, I would never want to be classified as a liar and I would never want to rob someone of that opportunity. Um, and also by being vulnerable, you are still helping someone else by sharing your story or by telling your truth, you're, I guarantee you're allowing someone else out there to not feel alone. And I think that's what we all want. We just want to feel seen and heard. And like, we aren't the only person on the planet who feels bad sometimes. And guess what guys, everybody feels bad sometimes. That's just life. I, I'm going to do that booing. Th- I'm always looking for, um, you know, uh, like tips and tricks. Like, obviously yeah. there's like big ones that like require uh, yeah. like a lot of time and stuff, which are great. And I do those, but like little, like in the moment when you're experiencing something, this is a helpful thing. And that vooing thing also like that touch, like I have certain parts of my body that like, I, because I have experienced trauma, I absolutely do not want touched. Yeah. And then parts of my body that I absolutely do want touched if I'm having like a moment. Um, and And that's really important too, right? Like you don't know anyone else's story. And so I should clarify, like before you, you know, touch, like ask them, like, is it okay if I touch my, and be super clear, like touch my shoulder to your shoulder for a minute. Is it okay? It's very strange. And I thought I was going to be totally creeped out by it. But the minute someone was like, oh, if you let someone put their foot on top of your foot, it's grounding. And I was like, I don't really wish for anyone to touch my feet. Yeah. It is remarkable how fast, like your nervous system can calm down. And it's just, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all what works for you. And I think people have to sort of find out through trial and error, what does work for you and, and not, not all trauma is the same. There's not one guidebook. Um, but I think, you know, it's really about figuring out that something isn't right. And then figuring out what for me is going to make this a little bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, just wound management, right? It's wound mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that you said that I know we're like, about, oh God, I could talk to you for, <laughs> but um, something that you just said that I thought was um, very emotionally intelligent, isn't the right word, but that's the only thing I can think of right now is like, um, knowing what you need, learning what you need, knowing what you need. And then not only telling the person what you need, but also being like, this is where I'm at right now. Like, can you accept me for who I am in this moment? Can you accept that I might have to leave this concert and you will be here by yourself? Like take me as I am. This is, you know, and I think that that's hard for, you said you're like a helper. Like, is that like an Enneagram? Did you get that from like an Enneagram? I'm a two. Okay. I'm a two for sure. Um, you know, like, I, I talk about I just, Enneagram all the time. So I was like, she's saying the helper a lot. She must be a two and she, this must be an Enneagram thing. It is a two, but it's also just like, 
accidentally before like pre-Enneagram, it really, like, if you said like, oh, what's a quote in your life? Like I was always a look for the helpers, like Mr. Rogers quote gal. And I, I think I derive so much joy from being there for others or brightening someone's day that accidentally over the years, I, a, I don't think I, until this past year, even really knew what the term self-care meant. Honestly, I, I like, I derive self-care as like doing things for other people and them being happy. And you're like, well, that actually, as it turns out, doesn't sound anything like self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like caring about other people, which I value. And I love that part of my heart so much, but I realized I started to get all of this anxiety because I'd be, I needed help. And I, I felt like I could never say that out loud. Or like, if I, gave an inkling to someone that I wasn't okay, that like, they were going to be worried about me. And now I've like burdened their day. And like all of it, it just, it was this wild spiral. And I just, um, I, I'm being a helper is part of who I am, but I, I, I had to get out of a place where like, that was my whole identity. Cause it didn't leave room for the other parts of me. And it also made me feel icky when I didn't feel like that. Or I felt like, man, like I actually, I don't know it. Maybe I did like, I laid something down for someone else. And now like they're helping me. Like, what do I do with it? Like, that's not our, that's not our role here. Um, but it, it, you know, like we're, it really is like that old airplane adage, right? Like you cannot help others until you put your own mask on yourself. Like that's, that's why that speech goes the way that it goes is, you know, you, you got to take care of yourself and your vessel so that you can help other people. And never should I be laying all of my issue in your lap and never should you be laying it in mine. But like, if we both are, are working, you know, at, at, our own mental health care. And we're, you know, both like we can help hold each other's stuff. You don't have to put it in my basket. I don't have to put it in yours, but like together we can hold it. And I think you have to, you mentioned being transparent with others, but I think that most importantly, you have to really be transparent with yourself Mm -hmm. and you have to like be okay. Not like, before someone else can be okay with you not being okay, I think you kind of have to be okay with that. Um, and, and truly, and like, not that you have to like run around saying it out loud, like, or holding a sign me like, guess what today I'm not okay. But like, when someone says, how are you? Like, I don't know. I'm just not having the greatest day. And like, now you've allowed the invitation for someone else to ask you why, instead of just being like, fine. And then being like, oh, so annoyed that they didn't ask me why I'm having a bad day. Well, how would they know you're having a bad day? You did. You just outwardly told them you were fine. So I think it's, it's about finding the communication. And honestly, the, I think it takes courage, you know, and I, I oh, don't yeah. know if I had that for a long time because I was too busy, like being like, have to be helper, Ashley, like can't be on, I can't be a helper. And be having a bad day. Right. That's not true. That's right. Yeah. And it's interesting because I am such an Enneagram head that like I've made all my loved ones take an Enneagram quiz, Enneagram quiz. And most, 
giving when you have them take the quiz, you're like, oh, this is actually satisfactory to both parties. As it turns out, I'm yeah. learning you're, you're learning in real time and I'm learning in real time. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's helpful for everybody in communicating, but like all of my, like my mom, my sister, all of my like closest loved ones are twos. They're all helpers. And, uh, I feel like this episode in particular is going to be very helpful for them to listen to because it just, um, reinstills the fact that like, just because you're not, um, always helping another person doesn't make you not a helper or doesn't make you like, or you can't even, you can't, like you said, you can't even do that adequately if you don't take care of yourself first. So you can't be, if we're talking on like the Enneagram helper terms, yeah. so you can't even be the best helper you could be if you don't first help yourself, you know? Well, and also if you're helping, I mean, this is a hard one to swallow. This is like, I'm excited. Uh, I mean, this one hit, uh, this one hit me about as hard as like, Oh, you're not, uh, you're, you're just telling me like, like, do you want to be a liar? I'm like, uh, no, I don't think so. Thank you for that. Um, but truthfully, I think it's all like, if you're a helper, right. You're, you're direct, you're, you're, you love seeing you're, you're doing it for others. You're, you know, you, if you're, if you identify as a helper, you are hoping to make someone else's day better or their life easier, whatever it might be. But I also found that sometimes when you identify as a helper, you accidentally find yourself helping because it makes you feel good. And I would challenge all of the helpers out there, all of those Enneagrams to, to really analyze. It's it's okay to feel good when you help someone, but it that is the reason you're doing it. If you find yourself overly stressed, oh, my plate is so full right now, but like, I just got to do this because it's going to make so-and-so. It's like, is, is, is it going to make their life easier? And, or is it for you? Because also there is a dibble dabble of selfishness in that, which I know as a helper, like you start saying like, you're selfish, like you're not telling, I'm like, whoa, those are not words I wish to be associated with. But it is, it's a, it's a good thing to like sit back for a minute and be like, okay, did I do, th did I do this with the intention of receiving gratitude or a thank you? Do I find myself miffed when other people don't show up in the exact same way I do? And like to take that seat back and be like, okay, but that's not, I did it to help them. And they, it's just, it's just a good self-analyzation to say like, why am I, why am I helping? Yes, yes, no? yes, yes. It's like, am I doing this because I genuinely want to help? Or is it because I want to get that like, thank you in return or that like hug in return or whatever the thing is. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Or am I like robbing them the opportunity to like step up in their own life? Yeah. You know? And like, that's not actually helpful as it turns out, Um, yeah. you know? And so just to- I don't know. It, I, it's been a deeply reflective couple of years of like really figuring out like why, you know, I think that's what I, I don't want to like prescribe for everyone who's gone through trauma, but it is like this also deep reflection on, on yourself. And like, I went through a real spiral of like being obsessed with time. Like, am I spending it wisely? I don't know when it's up. And like, not even knowing how to relax. Like, I, I don't even think I could 
relax at all for a long time because I felt like I was wasting my time instead of taking care of myself. And like, I think that's the interesting thing about trauma and also just mental health care in general. Like it's a lot of thought reframing. You know, we like get in this place where we prescribe a sentiment to a thought. And sometimes you have to like take a step back and be like, oh no, if I sit down on the sofa for 20 minutes and like read a book, like I'm not wasting my time just giving myself 20 minutes to like recover from my day. So I can go out and be a, you know, better employee tomorrow or, or spouse or family member tomorrow, whatever it might be. It's like a lot of thought reframing all the time. Oh yeah. That's like one of the most beneficial tools that I've come across in my years of therapy is reframing thoughts. Like, yeah. Or just thinking of like alternative re like, what was I talking about the other day? Where it's like, this is just the quickest example I can think of. It's like, where, where like, oh, they're not really, they're not talking to me as much as they normally do. Like, are they mad at me or whatever? And it's like, well, is there any other reasonable explanation that they might not be talking to you today? Could it be that they're busy today? Could it be that they're, they're having a hard day? And just like reframing it like that is even helpful. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, if, is there anything else that like you want to say before we wrap up or did we cover everything because I want just want to give you the opportunity to say everything anything you want I could honestly talk to you for like two more hours this is like <laughs> it's it's interesting I think I mean and you have a podcast about this so I, I I again I don't want to assume how you feel but like it's really it's really fascinating once you do find yourself like in a place and again I just I I don't I don't I, I don't, I never had any type of negative feeling towards it. It just wasn't an active part of my life before this. But once you like find the, like the goodness of mental health care, it is, it's something like I love, I love to talk about and shout from the rafters because it's just, it's, it's just so pivotal. Um, and I just, I've gotten to really watch it work wonders for, for so many people. Um, and there's just so many different areas and kinds and weight and different people who have different philosophies. And it's all, it's also fascinating to me, but I think, you know, the one like similar thing is like, once it becomes a part of your life, it's like something you wish to like shout from the rafters because it's, you want it for everyone. Um, and I just, I, I don't know. I think I think the world can be a tough place out there right now. And I, I think that, you know, it is, it's all of these like news headlines flying at us and it's can get scary and overwhelming. And I'm just, I'm grateful that I have an outlet to go to when, you know, those things are like that. And I just, I truly want that for everybody. I truly, you know, wish that for, for everyone. Cause there is, there's this like freedom and admitting like, you need help or you need to talk things through or whatever it might be. And I think through doing so, it's, it's really helped me own my story. And certainly it gave me the courage to go after this project and to, um, to help bring it to fruition and to, you know, I'm, I'm so proud that every single person who was on our set, who shared their story is, had, had a, had a positive experience in doing so. I think, 
you know, a lot of people get approached by the media. And I know in particular to this event got approached right away and they were, and, and a lot of it was a, you know, an aggressive approach or, and there, you know, gnarly horror stories of press hiding in bathrooms at funerals, like just My things God. you're like, gosh, darn it. And people aren't even at a place yet to know how, or even if they want to share their story. And I'm, I'm so proud that the people who came to share their story with us knew what they were signing up for. And when they got there, that there was someone there who could say, I don't know everything about what you went through, but I know a little bit about it. And I want you to know, like, this is a safe place. And then to make sure that that place is indeed safe, that if people needed a break, if they needed to talk about something further, if they needed to stay after their interview to work some, you know, to, to get a hug, to, to know that their story was going to be told with integrity and respect and that that space was one that was going to be honored with care. I, I'm just, I, again, it's like that personal and professional head on thing. It just makes me, it makes me so happy that we were able to provide that space for others. And, and through doing so, honestly, like I said, I'm a person who, you know, looks for reason in the unreasonable. And it, it's, it's been a really, it's been really healing to get to be a part of this and to help take all of that pain and turn it into some purpose and watch it positively ripple out into the world. It's, I, it's, it's overwhelming. What an incredible, I, I feel selfish in even saying it this way, but like, it is, I'm so glad it's, been a gift to others, but I, I'm also so grateful for the gift that it's been to me. Thank you so much for taking not only the time, but also giving me like your brain and your heart and your soul and all of it, because it's, I'm, I'm just very, I'm, I'm looking forward to people hearing this episode. And I hope that the people who need help can get help. And, uh, just to bring awareness of how to talk about these issues in a way that, can hopefully benefit us long-term. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you know, if there happens to be any other uh, survivors of Route 91 out there who are looking for support systems, support groups, um, you know, uh, resources, mental health care resources, yoga resources, you know, if you are look, if you find find yourself looking for community, I encourage everyone to reach out to the Las Vegas Resiliency Center. They are still there. They are still providing resources for not just survivors, but, you know, anyone who has been touched by this event, as well as, um, you know, victim family members, et cetera. So if you are someone who was touched by the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting, please, um, go to the resiliency center's website, connect with them. They will reach out to you and they, they, they will help you figure out a resource that might be right for you. So I'll throw that out there. And of course, if you're someone who is suffering um, from trauma of another kind or find yourself looking for resources, call, you know, 988, it is, they're there for you and you're not alone. And there, there are people out there who, who want to help you and yeah, don't be afraid to go lean on some folks. Don't be afraid to go get help. Um, everybody deserves to live a big, beautiful life. 
Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks for listening to this episode of How the Fuck Did You Bounce Back with guest Ashley Hoff. Ashley is one of the executive producers of a new documentary called 11 Minutes on Paramount+. Plus. 11 Minutes is about the mass shooting um, that was at Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas in 2017. Let's get into this recap. So Ashley talked about how when she makes documentaries that usually uh, they aren't personal, but then they turn personal. But this one was personal from the get-go because she was present at the music festival when the shooting occurred. She talked about how the goal of this documentary was to honor survivors rather than talk about the shooter. The Route 91 Harvest Music Festival was the deadliest mass shooting in the United States. Ashley talked about how she wanted the documentary to be the light That was in the darkness. She wanted it to be a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things for others. And that is exactly what this documentary is. When we recorded this episode, I hadn't watched the documentary at that point. I just felt honestly scared and nervous that I wouldn't be able to handle it. I have watched it. It's four parts. I highly, highly, highly recommend watching it. It's not only done incredibly well, but it's an incredibly important story. And you, I learned a great deal from it. So, uh, If you can and if you feel mentally prepared and ready for it, I absolutely recommend you watching it. And it's on Paramount+. Plus. Ashley talked a little bit about how, as a society, we've gotten into a habit of feeling really strongly and being really passionate about an event for a week and then moving on to the next headline and how this documentary partially was made to create a change. So they took a narrative approach to this documentary so that audience members can get to know each person on a personal level and to humanize what it is to be a part of something like this, to connect people to their fellow human beings in hopes that when we feel connected as audience members to these victims, we invest personally in making a change. This documentary covers the night of the event via cell phone footage, body cam footage, it really immerses you in that night. The documentary follows survivors from that night, including festival attendees, artists that were playing the festival, SWAT team members, first responders, and we really get a first-hand account of what it was like and also what their lives are like now. Ashley talks a little bit about how at the end of the docuseries, There's a scrolling list of all the names of people who have been killed in mass shootings since the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in 2017. And she said it's six and a half minutes of scrolling names across your screen. And it's incredibly heartbreaking. It's very challenging to watch and very important for us to see as a society that massive change needs to happen in terms of mental health and gun control. I asked Ashley a little bit about her feelings on gun control. We talked about that. And we talked a little bit about how a lot of people say when when talking about mass shootings, oh, you know, I wish there was a good guy with a gun there. And she said, there were. There were police officers and security everywhere. And it didn't matter. And I think that that's really important to hear. We talked a lot in this episode about prioritizing your mental health Ashley said that after this shooting, it took her three weeks to get a therapist to call her back. And that is just unacceptable. We talked about how, you know, we have a headache, we take ibuprofen, we have strep throat, we go to the doctor. It should be the same for mental health. She then said, if you're looking for something you can do right now, 
You can be a kinder neighbor. She said, do a random act of kindness, check on your friends, check on a stranger, because love can be both life-changing and life-saving. We talked about the choice to not say the name of the shooter in this documentary and how it was a very active choice that she and the rest of the storytellers made. And she explained that when she uh, was was asking the people she was interviewing about this, which included, you know, festival goers, um, first responders, police officers, etc., they all felt exactly the same in terms of not saying the shooter's name because they don't want to give recognition or quote unquote fame or attention to any of these people in hopes that it will be part of ending this issue. I asked her what has helped, uh, what she could recommend to people who have either been in a shooting themselves, experienced PTSD, or just in a low point in their life. She said therapy like resoundingly is so, so, so important. She talked about how community is key. If you want you know, to not talk to people that you know, if you want to talk to strangers, there are online forums, um, there are 12-step programs, and, and she talked about letting it out so that these feelings don't eat you alive. She also talked about some tangible things that help her with her PTSD. She said being aware of your surroundings, going early to events, um, asking for what you need. She talked about how um, you could just ask security, like, hey, where are the exits? Are there any pyrotechnics in the show? You know, if there's a crowd happening or there's extra security, asking them what's going on. She also talked about vooing, which is essentially just going for for one to three times you you do that until you run out of breath for one to three times until you can recenter yourself and she also said don't try to tough it out and do this alone ask for help we talked a lot about being a helper or a people pleaser and what that means um often people who are helpers want to help other people and they kind of neglect themselves but she kind of framed it as if you're not telling people your truth, you're robbing them of the opportunity to step up for you, which I think is a, a really truthful and interesting way to frame that. She talked about uh, how by being vulnerable, you are helping other people. You're allowing people to tell their own story and to feel less alone. We use the metaphor you know, that you always hear on airplanes, which is first put your mask on and then help others with their masks. We talked a little bit about when you do help someone, asking yourself, why am I helping this person? Am I doing it to get appreciation or love or gratitude? Or am I doing it because I genuinely want to help? Are you robbing them of the opportunity to learn to help themselves? These are all just really good questions to ask yourself if you identify as a helper. We also talked about reframing thoughts, which is an ongoing theme in this uh, podcast. And then if there are any survivors uh, listening to this, if you want help or you're struggling, she talked about contacting the Las Vegas Resiliency Center. And if you are struggling with your mental health, to call 988 for immediate assistance. Thanks again for listening. New episodes every Thursday. Thanks again for listening. New episodes every Thursday. Mm-hmm.